for Radio 1 91FM podcast. Right now on the line, I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Roy. Morena to you. Morning. How are we today? Getting there. <laughs> Still sitting in the lounge. Oh, nice. That's very nice. I've been at work for four hours. It's marvellous. Uh, but then again, I go home at 12 o'clock, so... Can't complain. No, shouldn't. Well, I shouldn't complain. I can, <laughs> but I shouldn't. Right. Uh, we're talking today because you're uh, doing the next round of Thirst for Knowledge, uh, fasting, paleo, and Mediterranean diets, the outcome of a study uh, that you co-authored. Um, what exactly was the study looking at? I guess the key thing we're interested in looking at is that um, you sort of hear a bit about these trendy or popular diets out in the, in the press. Um, we were interested in finding out if they actually worked in the real world for real people. We, we, when, when you say um, how they, they actually work, are we just looking at weight loss here or are we looking uh, at, at other markers, um, you know, uh, cholesterol and other things yeah. in the blood, things that may, you know, there could be long-term damage from or long-term benefits? Yeah, we're kind of interested in all of those things, actually. I mean, the first thing I guess we were interested in was would people actually choose to do sort of diets like paleo and fasting? And then if they do choose to do them, do they actually stick at them? I think it's pretty popular knowledge that people who choose to do diets don't tend to last very long. So we actually looked at that over a year. So if you wanted to start doing fasting after a year, would you still be doing it? Um, And then... If you had chosen to do it, did it actually work? So in terms of both weight loss, which is often why people start doing diets, but also in terms of health markers, like you said. Are you leaving these people to their own devices while they're doing these diets? Or are you giving them, um, you know, uh, encouragement along the way? Because for the most of us, if we're going to do a a diet, um, we're we're doing it alone or maybe with people in our household. And I I assume if you've got um, some kind of backing um, from from experts that are coaching you a little bit, even if just a little bit, it would be easier to stick to. Yeah, the short answer is I think they didn't get a lot of help. So, you know, normally when people do diet studies or nutrition studies, they have a dietitian sort of helping them along the way and telling them what to eat and checking in on them and making sure they know what they're doing. So we definitely didn't have that. Um, Parts of our study had different sorts of support which was sort of part of a different bit of work but they didn't have sort of what you'd call dietetic support so they didn't have dietitians helping them so it was basically a one-off implementation where they got told here look here's how you do the diet off you go um, and for some of those people it's like come back in six months and 12 months through blood tests yeah so, yeah <laughs> what about again like you would do it in the real world you don't you know most of us don't have someone coaching us along yeah what about other controls like um you know maybe there some people are going for runs or going to the gym and others aren't. Uh, Are you keeping an eye on their fitness as well? We did. Um, The intent of this trial was to be a real-world trial, so really to totally replicate what you'd find when you just told people to do stuff and let them live their life the way they wanted to live it. Um, But we did take measures of their physical activity um, and their fitness as well. You used a modified version of paleo. I was interested in that. Why? Um, I think back when this started, which was about five years ago, paleo was the kind of hot, trendy diet that everyone was in, and every second headline was about it. But it, I think the idea that paleo was basically eat a half a cow for breakfast um, and more like a keto diet was not really what we were after. We were trying to go for something that was really a lot more sustainable for normal people to eat over a long period um, and kind of, kind of a bit more consistent with sort of healthy guidelines. So it was more of a 
whole foods, unprocessed natural foods kind of diet rather than a really strict paleo which says you can't have any dairy and you can't have any grains. We sort of said you shouldn't eat too much of that but a little bit here and there is not going to make too much difference. Yeah, well the hardcore paleo people out there will be, like, they'll be up in arms <laughs> about this. Pete Evans yeah, will be happy. some criticism about that, but yeah, it was expected. I bet you did. I bet you Pete yeah. Evans wasn't happy uh, <laughs> at all. Um, so, I mean, I guess when it comes down to it, sustainability is the key, right? And how did they do in terms of um, people dropping off along the way? Um, as expected, um, we had a really high drop-off rate, and that's pretty normal with any kind of diet or exercise trial. Um, so after about 12 months, roughly half of the people who chose to do the Mediterranean or fasting diets were still reporting that they were doing it. Um, and in our paleo group, it was more like a third. Um, when it comes to the fasting, it's an interesting one. Um, would it not lead to things like tiredness, fatigue, and loss of productivity on those days? I think it's different for different people. Um, I think certainly when people, like talking to the people in the study, initially some people found it quite difficult as they adapted to it. Yeah. Um, there seemed to be, and this wasn't reported in our study results, but from what I saw, there seemed to be some people who, once they adapted to it, really enjoyed it and didn't find it too bad. And then there were other people who just really got hangry and never got past that. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to markers and blood and things like that, I mean, did did some diets do better than others? Was were some uh, did some of them have negative impacts on like metabolic rate and those kinds of things as well? Yeah, that was kind of inter- That was one of the more interesting things in our study. I mean, overall the changes were pretty small, and all of the all of the diets actually led to kind of small benefits. So I think that was interesting in itself. That you know, like we had a Mediterranean as sort of like a control diet, and Mediterranean fasting and paleo all led to some kind of small benefits in some way. So none of them were bad, yeah. um, but unsurprisingly, perhaps the Mediterranean led to the best control in blood sugar. Yeah. Um, and that's possibly because our fasting people, um, when we looked at their diet records, while they were eating less, they tended to eat more processed food when they did eat. So yeah. that actual stuff they chose when they were not fasting wasn't so good. <laughs> okay, so that's the thing. Like, I mean, fasting plus the Mediterranean diet might be um, the way to go. But if you're going to fast, you're really covering it up if you're eating crap. Yeah, well, that's a really good question because, I mean, we kind of wanted to think of fasting or people like to think of fasting as a bit of a life hack, you know, like if you want to eat junk, then if you just fast every once in a while, you know, you can get away with it. Um, And it seems like from what we found, that's not quite true. Like, yes, you can still lose weight, um, but you don't show quite as... um, as many metabolic benefits as choosing good food most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, and your body's probably absorbing more of the bad stuff when you're eating the bad stuff anyway. Because it, um, it was interesting. They did lose the most weight, and they did have reductions in blood pressure. So I guess the flip side of that is, if you are wanting to choose more junky food, and I'm not recommending that, but um, then doing a bit of fasting every once in a while does seem to help negate some of that damage. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Um, well, you said there was, you know, there was benefits, um, but there wasn't major um, changes. But what, did you see um, bigger changes uh, with people that were doing more exercise? Um, oh, actually, it was sort of, uh, it was part of the overall study, but not in this particular paper. But we actually also looked at comparing um, high-intensity interval training to just doing your normal 30 minutes a day. Yeah. Um, and what we did find in that was the people who chose to do, like, really short high-intensity, like, maybe only 20 minutes three times a week of high-intensity interval training, um, those people who stuck at that actually 
got quite a lot of benefit. So they lost sort of the fat around their organs um, and just got more changes really than the people who are doing standard exercise but mm-hmm. both is good mm-hmm. I mean the short version is what you can stick at and what you like is the best thing for you yeah, yeah everybody forgets about the fat around their organs because eh? you don't really see it yeah exactly yeah. and because we, we did DEXA scans so we could measure it because so. ah, that's, <laughs> that's the real danger right um, definitely in terms of health outcomes. Like, I mean, the point of the study really, when you do a weight loss trial, we don't really care about what you look like. No, no, of course <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah, uh, we do care about the impacts on your health. And so even though our study doesn't sound very impressive with a, a kind of a overall weight loss average of four kilos over a year, you're kind of, oh, that's not very much. But four kilos is actually, if you can keep that off, that's quite impressive from a health point of view. It's eight blocks of butter. Exactly. That's a lot of butter. You don't have to carry it when you run. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Um, fantastic. So um, your talk is on Tuesday from 5.30 through to 6.30 p.m. It's at Umbrellos. Um, five people will be there. Uh, <laughs> that's including you and the staff. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, people, because, it, of course, we're living in this um, COVID-19 world, uh, so there's limited capacity there. So how can people apply? I guess you'd have to apply to go. Um, I believe that up to 28 people can go now. Um, that's, that's wonderful. According to my last email. And then, yeah, it would also be available by Zoom. Um, and I think you can access the details on Facebook. Yes, uh, that's right. On the Thirst yeah. Knowledge um, Facebook page, everybody should uh, go and follow that anyway because there's so many interesting Thirst yeah. Knowledge um, lectures coming up all the time, like this one. And, and it's great because it's... Um, you know, have you done one of these before? Have you been to them before? Because they're really, they're, they're nice, they're relaxed, they're easily digestible um, for, um, no no pun intended there. <laughs> I think it's a great concept to have uh, learn things in a fun environment. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. All right, um, so once again, it's on Tuesday, 5.30 through to 6.30 at Umbrellos and on Zoom as well. Go to the Thirst for Knowledge Facebook page, um, or you can find the details on the Otago University events page as well. Um, Dr. Roy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, and have yourself a wonderful day. Um, see you on Tuesday. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Right uh, there we go. Thirst for knowledge with Dr. Melissa Roy this Tuesday, five thirty to six thirty at Umbrellos. That was a Radio One ninety one FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.